Today we're in Hebrews 11, and Mr. Dan McIntyre is going to preach for us today, so I'll pray for him as well. Hear this word of the Lord, beginning in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended, As having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that you are speaking to us, and we pray for trust. We pray for more assurance that we hear from you. And I pray that you bless Dan as he brings the word. I pray that we would have ears to hear, Lord, because you were speaking. And help us to hear and live out this faith you've called us to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning um, to the Bengals fans. Who day? To the Browns fans. Um, the doors are back there. <laughs> uh, to the Steelers fans. Uh, who am I kidding? Steelers fans don't go to church. <laughs> I know. I got. I got you, didn't I? All right. I kid. I kid. Obviously, I kid. <laughs> taking shots right away, come out swinging. Um, so we're going through Hebrews, as, uh, we're in Hebrews 11. Um, I, have, I have really loved this Hebrews uh, sermon, or this sermon series. I feel like I'm getting a lot out of it. Um, and today we're arriving at what may be the most famous passage of, or you know, chunk of scripture in Hebrews, which is Hebrews 11. Um, some people call it the Hall of uh, Faith. Some people call it like the Faith Hall of Fame. Um, and it's, it's a section that I've always really liked. It kind of goes through all these people in the Old Testament and tells you, gives you an example of how they live by faith. And I think one of the reasons that I like it is it not only helps like, connect and make sense of the Old Testament for me, it kind of frames the Old Testament in a different light than maybe I would have read it originally. It frames it by faith. Um, but it actually kind of frames the very narrative of existence. You know, it starts, if you read verse 3, it talks about creation, and then it goes on through all the old patriarchs in Genesis, and then it goes through the judges, and to the champions, and to the prophets, and then heroes, and martyrs, all the way to Jesus at the top of chapter 12. And, like, this framing of history is not the same view you would get in your Western Civ class, right? 
In God's retelling of the history of the world, you know, there's no Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar in this list. The people that God wants to talk about are relatively obscure figures who are marked not necessarily by great achievements, although they do have some, you know, some notable achievements in there, but that's not what makes them exceptional. What makes them exceptional is their faith. And this is a reminder to us that God's story, the history of redemption, and thus the, the story of the world has always been and always will be marked by men and women of faith. God's story will always be marked by men and women of faith. And as I kind of read Hebrews 11, I kind of, you know, to me there's like a little bit of a parallel between Hebrews 11 and 1 Corinthians 13. Um, you guys, I, I would guess most of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13 because you've been to a wedding. Um, it's, it's the famous love is patient, love is kind um, passage. And both of these chapters what they do is they use vivid imagery to try to describe something that is kind of indescribable. Like, we would all say we know what love is, right? Like, we all understand what love is. We know it when we see it. But if I ask you to define it, it might take you a few words, right? Um, Paul, when he writes it in 1 Corinthians 13, uses 250 words and it feels like he's just scratching the surface. And so, like that, I think faith, it feels like one of these things that's kind of straightforward. But then when we read Hebrews 11, and we see that the author uses over 900 words to kind of make his point, we realize that maybe there's a little bit more to it than meets the eye. Now, you might be saying, hey, wait a second, Dan, you big dummy, it's right there in, in verse 1. In, in Hebrews 11, verse 1, he says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So what's the big confusion? And I would, I would respond to that assertion, to that claim by you in three ways. First, name-calling hurts, okay? <laughs> didn't, you didn't need to say that. Um, second, I think it's absolutely true. I'm not going to argue with the Bible at all. You know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. But my third, uh, my third you know, comment on there would be, um, is that complete? Is that the complete definition of it? You know, if, if you said define love, and I use 1 Corinthians uh, 13.1, and I said, well, love is patient, love is kind, it does not brag, it does not boast. And I said, there you go, that's it. You might go, well, yeah, th those are true, but keep going. Tell me more. And I think that's what we see in Hebrews 11 is we get, um, we get enlightenment on um, a description of faith, and then we get more. We get more. Because in that first verse, in that first verse, the fourth word there, assurance, it is a, um, it is a Greek word, um, and it's a Greek word, hypostasis. And translated from Hebrew, it has 12 different meanings. And the translators and the commentators have not stopped arguing about which one is correct. You have assurance, you have certainty, you have confidence, you have substance, you have reality, you have foundation, you have guarantee. And each one of those brings a little something different to the table. 
And so how do we kind of go forward and try to unwrap this idea of being faithful? And as I was sort of studying this, I appreciated a few commentators who would say, and they would note the variety of different meetings and said, hey, maybe this is intentional. Maybe this is the point. Maybe the broad richness of the words being used is important. So instead of fighting for the perfect definition and, and pitting theologian versus theologian, which quite frankly, I'm not smart enough to do, um, what I want to do this morning is go a different route. What I want to do is use the examples given to us because sometimes pictures work better than words. And so what I'm proposing, and not that you have a choice because I'm going to do it, um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three examples of faith um, and then see what these three examples of faith teach us about what it means to be faithful to God. So the first example that we'll be looking at is Abraham. He gets the most ink in chapter uh, 11, so I, I would be remiss if I didn't use Abraham. And I want to ask, the question I want to ask is, what do we learn about being faithful through Abraham? So Brad read verses 1 through 7 for us. I'm going to pick up in verse 8, and it should be on these screens here. We're going to read from 8 to 16 and kind of cover what the author says about Abraham. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, and as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah received the power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. So we learned a little bit about Abraham from the liturgy. And before Abraham was Abraham, he was Abram. And Abram was not a man who was seeking God. Abram was an idol-worshiping pagan when God approached him. And this is, this is something we want to we kind of wrap our heads around, is that you know, Abraham wasn't special. And God didn't approach him because of any virtue or goodness within him. God approached Abraham out of his own sovereign grace. He said, that guy, that's the guy I'm going to use. God's call to Abraham came before Abraham's faithful response. And that is a pattern that we see in Scripture time and time again. Faith 
always begins with God approaching someone. Usually it's God approaching, you know, some wandering soul, someone who is lost, someone who out there who is, you know, uninterested or ignorant of God. And as I was reading this, I started to wonder, you know, about the folks that would be in the Oaks today, the folks that would be sitting here with us this morning and wondering if there were anyone who just wandered in this morning. If you just wandered in, maybe you got drug along, you have really no intention of, uh, <laughs> of being here or paying a lot of attention to the sermon, um, and you just wandered through the doors. And if that's you today, let me say, perfect, great, we'll just call you Abraham. Whether you know it or not, I think God has you here for a reason. God brought you here this morning for a reason. Even if you didn't wander in, even if you came in here super intentional, God still has you here sitting in this place in Middletown, Ohio for a reason. And that's a great question to ask. Why am I here? Or I think maybe even a better question, why has God brought me here? Now, God didn't just, you know, pop into Abram's life and say, Abram, hey, it's me, God. Um, I exist. All right, see you later. Oh, by the way, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. Bye. <laughs> like, he didn't just zoom in and zoom out. What he did is he called Abraham and he said, um, get up, leave your country, and go to a new land where I will bless you and make you into a great nation. And then Abraham responds by doing something very important and something that we need to emulate in our own lives not complicated, but it is hard. He believed them. Abraham believed him. He believed God. At the ripe old age of 75, you know, verse 12 says he was as good as dead. I, I, I like, he's a bag of bones. He packs up his stuff and he grabs his wife and his nephew and he leaves town to follow God into the unknown. God spoke and Abraham listened and responded. And there's a lesson in here for us. And the first thing that we need to understand, acknowledge, and believe is that our God is a speaking God. Our God is not silent. However, when we disengage, when we stop reading God's Word, when we stop coming to church or when we come to church and tune out, when we abandon our community, we will feel that God is silent. But God is always ready to speak with us when we're ready to listen. So Abraham, he leaves his home and he arrives at this promised land. And when he gets there, it's not empty. There's other people occupying the land. So instead of building you know, cities or settlements, as I imagine he had in his head when God told him to go, he lives in tents. He's living out of a tent. And his son, when he takes over, he lives out of his tent. And his grandson lives out of a tent. Abraham and his children, or at least through, through, uh, through Isaac and Jacob, they never saw God's promise fulfilled in their lifetime. Think about that for a minute. They lived and they pursued and they remained faithful and they never saw God's promise fulfilled in their lifetime. 
They had endurance and faith that God would fulfill his promise even when they didn't have the uh, physical you know, um, signs around them saying that it was happening. Despite setbacks, they continue to believe in God's goodness and his faithfulness to his word. And, and Paul writes about this a little bit in Romans. He says that hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he can already see? But if we hope for what we do not yet see, we wait for it patiently. And a big lesson that we can take away from Abraham, among many lessons, I should say, we could spend, I don't know, a year studying faith through Abraham. But a big lesson that we can learn is that living a life of faith means waiting for God's promises to manifest themselves. It's believing that even though we don't see God in the present moment, that He's still there. He's still working. His plan is still coming to fruition. A life verse for me is Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and for those called according to His purpose. So that's, that's example number one in Abraham. Example number two that I want to look through is Rahab. And we, uh, we learn a little bit about Rahab in verses 30 and 31 here in Hebrews. Um, I'm going to read them here. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And these verses, they, they recall um, Israel's like, conquest of the promised land. So it's the same promised land promised to Abraham. Generations later, Israel's ready to take it. And the first city that they're going to take is Jericho. Um, before launching their attack, their leader uh, was Joshua, um, and Joshua sends two spies into the city. He's doing a little reconnaissance work, right? He wants to see what he's up against, and I guess know that Jericho is surrounded by large walls and makes it a very difficult city to attack. So he sends two spies into the city, and the spies are, are found out. Their cover is blown, and someone tells the king of Jericho that there are spies in your city. Um, and this is where Rahab enters the story. Um, Rahab was a prostitute um, who ran an inn. So you can kind of imagine what kind of establishment it was. But she hides the spies. She hides the spies from her own people. She hides the spies from the authorities. And then she helps them escape the city. Now, why would Rahab do this? What would be in it for her? Why would she help these foreigners, these people from the desert? You know, they didn't have artillery. They didn't have siege engines. They weren't going to be able to take down the walls of Jericho. Why did she help these two Israelite spies? We don't have to guess because she says it in Joshua 2. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. For the Lord, your God, He is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then 
you probably know the rest of the story. Um, the night, or right before the battle, Joshua is visited by this mysterious figure. And the figure, it calls himself the commander of the Lord's army. And, you know, he might have been a pre-incarnate Jesus. It might have been an angel. I, I don't know who this person was. But he gives Joshua very specific instructions on how to take down Jericho. So he tells him, and Joshua obeys in faith to walk around the city seven times with his army, march around seven times, and on the seventh day, blow your trumpet. And he blows his trumpet on the seventh day, and the walls fall down, and they're able to take the city. And it's a fascinating story. I love this story. But I, what I find, what, what struck me in my preparation for the sermon, and as I'm kind of reflecting on this passage, what struck me in Hebrews 11, it's not Joshua, the hero, the Israelite general, who gets his name inserted among the faith heroes. It's the prostitute living in a cursed city. It's Rahab. You know, much like Abraham, she was willing to take a risk, right? She risked her comfort, she risked her safety, and she put her faith in God. And God is not ashamed to count this woman living a sinful life, a sinful profession, in a sinful city of a sinful race. He's not ashamed to count her among his children. And not only is she counted, she's exalted. Her people, her place, her job, her sin no longer define her. She is defined by her faith in God. And I imagine that Joshua and Rahab didn't have a lot in common, right? I imagine they were very different people. But they both believed in the Lord. They both believed in his power to save. And from our vantage point now, looking back a few thousand years later, their differences don't seem to matter much at all, do they? What matters? Their faith. Their faith and the promise of salvation they obtained by it. And my, my hope, my application from Rahab, I hope that this does two things. One, I hope that it, it humbles the Joshuas among us. You know, there's, we need Joshuas. We need bold, daring, you know, charge-in generals, leaders of men and women to, to go and do awesome things for God. We need them, but we need them to be humble because we need them to stand next to Rahab's. And we need them to value Rahab's. And we need them to love Rahab's. Rahab's who live sinful lives. People who feel insecure or insignificant. People who have a past that maybe they aren't um, thrilled with. I hope that those people realize that God isn't ashamed of your past. Because we're, we're not measured in this... In this narrative that God's writing, in this story of redemption that God is writing in the, in the history of our world, we're not measured by our resume. We're measured by our faith. So I want to move from Rahab onto my last example, which is Gideon. Um, Gideon, uh, he gets his name checked in verse 32. Um, verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And it goes on. 
And the reason I wanted to bring Gideon into this conversation is because I wonder if there's some people here listening to all this talk of faith and faithfulness and they feel discouraged because they wrestle with doubts. You know, maybe your life hasn't been easy and maybe your walk with God hasn't been easy. Maybe you've seen hard things. Maybe you've experienced sicknesses or hurt or loss or emptiness. And those things, they can make us, they can, they can bring us to doubt God's plan or even doubt that God exists at all. And as I was preparing the sermon, you know, a, a story, a, a personal situation kept popping into my head. Um, it's, a, you know, um, my, my college roommate, um, his wife uh, battled breast cancer for years and years, um, at least a couple of years, and she, um, she battled breast cancer, and it was a hard battle. She fought a hard fight, and, and she won, and she, the, the breast cancer went into remission, um, and just this last month, they found it in her brain. And after that fight, and they have kids, and after that fight, it was just heartbreaking. And they're the, they're the most faithful people. Their faith, it is astonishing. I am so encouraged by them. But my faith was shook. I thought, God, what are you doing? This isn't good. They've already been through their fire. Maybe it's someone else's turn. You know, I had that moment where I thought, did I just, did I, have I made this whole thing up? I had to wrestle with that for a minute. What do we do with doubt? Is there any room in the family of God for a doubter? There's several places in the Bible where um, a doubter can find comfort. You know, there's, there's obviously Thomas, doubting Thomas, of course. Um, he's never cast out. Um, Jesus himself seems to wrestle on some level with God's plan in both the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross when he cries, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even here in the hall of faith, we can find comfort in Gideon. Gideon was known as a judge, and a judge in the Old Testament is different than what we think of a judge today. It's more like a, 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 a military leader, a warrior, and it's someone who leads Israel against foreign oppression um, after the conquest of the Promised Land. Um, but before Gideon was called by God to be a judge and to lead, he was an afraid young man. Gideon was the youngest son of his household, and he was, his household was part of the weakest clan of Israel. And he was so afraid of his enemies that um, when he would thresh wheat, and I, I know nothing about threshing wheat, and I did no research on it, but I know one thing I could probably tell you is you do it outside. Someone could probably say, it's probably an outside activity, right? So where does... Where does Gideon thresh his wheat? He brings it into his wine press, and he threshes wheat in his wine press because he's so afraid of being ambushed by his enemies. 
And then in almost irony, an angel of the Lord comes and visits him and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Go in this might of yours and save Israel. And Gideon's response is priceless because he doesn't say, sure, I'm in. He says, where has God been? What has God been doing? And where are the promises that he made to our people? And then he says, why did you pick me? Are you sure you got the right guy? And so then he actually has the audacity to ask God to prove himself. And he, he sets up this test, and he puts this fleece on the ground. And he says, God, if, you're, if, if you really want me to do this, here's, here's what I'd like you to do. All right, tonight, when I, or when I wake up, what I want is the fleece to be soaking wet, but all the ground to be dry around it. So all the dew collects on the fleece, no dew on the ground around it. And so he wakes up the next morning, the fleece is soaked, the ground is dry. And you would think he'd go, well, there it is, there's my answer. But what does Gideon do? He goes, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. one more time, God, let's run this back. But this time, what I'd like to do is flip it, you know? Oh, let's, let's, let's turn this around. Now I want the fleece to be bone dry, but I want the ground to be soaked. So he sets out his fleece again, and the next morning, obviously, it's um, dry fleece, wet ground. And Gideon, despite the questions and doubts that he brings to the table, he puts his faith in God, and he goes on, and it's, a fascinating, it's more fascinating stories that we can't get into today. He goes on to lead Israel to victory. But why does Gideon get name-checked in the Hall of Faith? Why does this doubter get name-checked here? And the reason is that doubts are not a problem for God. We could go through the Old Testament heroes, we could go through each one, and we could find a place where they doubted God. And having faith does not mean that you never doubt. Because true faith may have those moments where you find yourself under attack by questions and by doubts. But, and here's what we can learn from Gideon, faith is taking those questions and doubts into the right place. It's taking these questions and doubts to the source. It's taking these questions and these doubts and our fears and taking them directly to God. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It's where you turn in the face of doubt. Faith isn't the absence of doubt. It's where you turn in the, in the face of doubt. And so my encouragement to all of us is when we find ourselves questioning God, when we find ourselves wrestling with those big, those big questions, fears, doubts, don't let it fester. I think, I think the worst thing we can do is push it down. And that's what we all want to do, right? Especially on Sunday mornings in a church. It's really hard to come up here and say that you have doubts. Don't let it fester and don't hide it. Don't push it down. Bring it to God. I think bringing your fears, bringing your questions, bringing your doubts to God, that is a huge demonstration of faith. So 
We've looked at Abraham, we looked at Rahab, we looked at Gideon, and I do feel a little bit like the author in verse, you know, how he writes in verse 32, and what more shall I say, but time would fail me. Because I, I really do feel like we're just scratching the surface. We could go through all of these examples. And there's great stuff. If you have a chance to reflect on Hebrews 11 today, this week, do it. It will be, t- it will be well worth your time. But I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the hall of faith, it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. And I, I want you to understand that the argument that the author of Hebrews is making here is that we have something better than what the Old Testament heroes had. Because, um, well, let me read this. This is Hebrews 11, and this is uh, 39 through uh, chapter 12, verse 2. And all of these, meaning all the Old Testament heroes that we've been talking about, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that cl- which clings so closely, and let us run the race, oh, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The men and women of the Old Testament, they lived their lives of faith in hope of a Savior, that God would redeem his people. We live our lives of faith in the reality of a Savior, that Jesus has met us. He met us despite our sin, despite our past, despite our doubts. He meets us and he redeems us. And and it's no accident that this chapter is capped off with a description of running a race, running this race with endurance. Because when you're running, I, I'm, I do a little bit of running. Um, my wife just finished a half marathon, so she's the real runner. But I can tell you this. This is what I know. And that is that when you're running, it does not matter whether you're running, whether you're walking, or whether you're crawling. If you keep going in the same direction, eventually you will finish the race. You will find your way to the finish. And so it is with faith. If we want to run this race and this life that God has called us to, if we want to hold on to and grow our faith, we have to keep our eyes in the right direction. And that is squarely on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So if there's one thing, and I have loved all the the sermons in this Hebrew series so far. I feel like I've learned a ton from the other folks who've been up here preaching. Um, You know, one thing I'm taking away, don't look back, don't look down, look up. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And the question that we have to continually ask ourselves is how do we do that? How do we continually refocus our eyes on Jesus? And one way that we're going to do here in a second is through communion. And here we celebrate, you know, Christ's victory in our lives over sin, over that sin that has separated us from God. Um, we're going to celebrate that, that Christ defeated sin.
So the night before Jesus died, he was with his friends, and they were sharing a meal, and he offered them bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he passed a cup of wine saying, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then he asked them to do this in remembrance of him. And this is a faithful act whereby each of us is saying that we need Jesus. We need Jesus' death, life and death in our lives. If you're wandering, you know, if, you're, if you came in here like Abraham, maybe you don't know Jesus, you know, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Um, I'm so glad you're here. I think you're here for a purpose. Um, you are also invited, but the invitation is different. Um, your invitation is to know Jesus, is to meet Jesus. Meet him here. Jesus is a man who died to restore you to God. If that seems okay, what do I do then? Come talk to me after the sermon. Grab one of the pastors. There's always a pastor hanging out in the lobby. Let's talk about what it means to meet Jesus. Um, for those taking communion, I want to give you a couple thoughts as you come up here and, and enjoy it. Um, let's enjoy the beauty of the cross and, and this, this celebration. This is not something the Old Testament heroes got to do. They saw this from afar, was we know in full. Let's appreciate being among the people of God. We are the descendants of Abraham. We are the promise fulfilled for Abraham. So let's enjoy as we stand up next to brother and sister. Let's enjoy each other's presence. And let us also, like the Old Testament heroes, they, they, didn't, see, they didn't get their promise all the way fulfilled, right? There's still, there's still an aspect of waiting. So too with us. We know that there's a better place for us. We know that that Jesus is coming back to restore all things. So let's look forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, the, uh, the better and heavenly country. Will you guys pray with me? God, uh, thank you so much for these examples of faith in Hebrews 11. Thank you that sometimes when we don't understand things, you give us just great pictures of men and women who have run before us that we can learn from, um, that we can emulate. Uh, God, um, I pray for our, our collective faith, the people. I pray that we would run this race that you have given us with endurance, um, that we would um, not shy away when we feel like, um, like we have questions and doubts, but we would send those to you and that, um, that you would help us complete this race with faith. Lord, I pray that the people of the Oaks would be marked by their faith. Um, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.